The Old Pilot's Plain Tales A Homage to a Pilot Something is happening in my life that, despite its depth and intensity, happens to almost everyone. The difference for me is that it's occurring so far away that I can't be part of it, in spite of its importance to me. Many of us all around the world are going through something similar. It's partly a function of travel restrictions brought on by a health crisis that has forced its way into our lives like an unwelcome drunk at a wedding, a belligerent foe who, despite our fury, we're unable to attack. An awful distraction when we need calm and understanding plus a steady hand, but all we see around us is fury and frustration. I'm losing something that has been part of my life since conception, an overriding, dominant force that has taught and controlled, but nurtured and comforted as well. There is nothing in my life that could possibly replace it, and when it's gone... I will have lost something so unique and precious to me that it will leave a huge gap in my life, a hole in my heart that will never heal. While I write, impotent to change what is happening, the life force of a man who lies thousands of miles away is slipping from his grasp, a grasp that has been firm and sure for all of his life, until now. He grew up on the white sand beaches of Western Australia, not as some might think, a boy from privilege, but one whose grandfather was a carpenter and father a postal worker. As our youngsters are enamoured with celebrities on YouTube a hundred years ago, the advances of science and technology inspired the young people of the world. So it was that he took time from the fun he was having at the Cottesloe Lifesaving Club to go gliding in a flimsy machine that they built themselves. My first step towards actually getting airborne was to join the local gliding club. And there we uh, we b- built our own gliders and risked our lives by shock cord launching them into the air and hoping somehow to manhandle um, these things back onto the ground. This fascination with aviation would take him to an engineering apprenticeship and when war broke out, he found himself unable to volunteer. He was trapped in a protected occupation. Eventually freed... He was able to follow a dream that would take him into the sky and into danger. He became part of a generation of pilots who took on responsibility well before they were ready, but who rose to the challenge and surpassed it. Anxious to get into the fight, he left the beautiful shores of Australia to join the Royal Air Force chaps who were standing alone against the might of Hitler. Rather than wait for an opportunity to become a glamorous fighter pilot, he chose his first chance to get into the fight on the Sunderland flying boats of Number 10 Squadron, Royal Australian Air Force, 
based at Plymouth in the west of England. The aircraft that he flew was well armed and needed a crew of 11. And we had uh, an enormous amount of armament. The the Germans used to refer to us as uh, the flying porcupine because we had so many guns. Above the convoys of merchantmen zigzagging their way across the Atlantic, he found the patrols an enormous source of frustration. Leaving at last light, they would return to see the devastation and ruin that Nazi wolf packs of submarines had dealt while they were away. Unable to land in rough water, they were forced to watch men drown in front of their eyes. There were 156,000 merchant navy or merchant navy guys operating on those convoys, of which 33,000 lost their lives. If you can imagine a chaos at night in a convoy that was being attacked by up to 20 U-boats, then you, you had some vague idea of the possibility of, of these guys surviving, which was almost nil. Water temperatures were so low that they, uh, they wouldn't last long in the water. There were certainly no POW camps. Their work was long and often disheartening, but eventually, as technology equipped them to fight on their own terms, they began to see that their thousands of hours in the air was having an effect. We would drop our torpedo charges ahead of the swirl that the, uh, the U-boat had left, hoping that uh, we might catch it before it, became, it got too deep. He flew long hours for day after day as the requirements needed to complete a tour of duty were very difficult to achieve. It was a long, long tour, Uh, We had to mark up 1,000 hours of operational flying before we could finish a tour, or we had to have 18 months of continual operations before. So it was 18 months or 1,000 hours. Eventually, though, as the cheers of VE Day, Victory Europe, rang out around Plymouth Hoe, a future could be considered. It started back home with the Douglas DC-2 out of Perth, Western Australia. A rough and basic aircraft, but one that could teach a lot to a man willing to learn. After several frustrating years, his career continued back in England with the Vickers Viking from Blackbush Airport. This poorly equipped aircraft, and barely able to warrant the description of an airliner, took his passengers thousands of miles across the empty, scorched expanse of the African deserts and through fertile plains all the way from London to Harare. No global positioning system, no up-to-the-minute weather forecasts, just a map and compass. We used to take this little twin-engine aeroplane right down into darkest Africa or anywhere else we could find work to do. And eventually the company um, started up a service to 
uh, Nairobi in Africa and uh, also down into that which was Salisbury. We used to take seven days on a round trip to Nairobi and nine days on a round trip to Salisbury, which is now Harare. So it was uh, daylight flying only because there were no order, uh, there were no navigators at all in that part of the world. The adventures of those early airline pilots were many, but the industry moved apace. Before too long, the Bristol Britannia was his willing steed, with its long, gleaming fuselage and four mighty Bristol Proteus turboprop engines that had a propensity for flaming out. Quite often, in, you'd be in the icing level in bad weather, and the uh, engines would literally flame out because of icing problems. Uh, this wasn't a great worry to uh, Bristol's because they had they'd put a, a glow plug inside the engine that immediately relit it. So they 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 did their best to convince captains that it was just simply a bump, not not to worry about it. It wasn't going to affect the performance of the aeroplane. It had just simply relight. But, of course, as far as the passengers were concerned, you can imagine how they felt if they were sitting there looking out the window at night and suddenly a big flame would lick down the side of the fuselages <laughs> as this engine relit itself. <laughs> With the arrival of the jet age came the chance to captain one of the world's most beautiful airliners, the Vickers VC-10 to be one of the first captains to fly this wonderful aircraft meant that training was conducted on the prototypes out of the little aerodrome attached to the factory at Wisley. One of the most advanced airliners in the world at the time, it was a delight to fly. It turned out that the VC-10 was one of the most sophisticated aircraft to be produced at that time, and it was overpowered. So you couldn't imagine a more satisfactory aeroplane from a pilot's point of view. Uh, if you've got an overpowered aeroplane, <laughs> you, you feel a lot happier. It, it was really quite spacious as well, and it was capable of flying beyond the speed of sound if you'd like to push it that far, and we were told strictly not to do so. So we used to fly it just below the speed of sound, and uh, they were perhaps in the days before everybody had to fly at the same speed, for instance, across the Atlantic. A takeover by another company led to a move on to a Boeing aircraft, the 707, which didn't prove to be particularly popular amongst the pilots who had left the VC-10. 707s. Now, the 707 was going to replace the VC-10A because it was... Uh, equipped with fan jets and not straight through jets therefore it was much more economical and also it had greater capacity so therefore it could bring the company back into into profitability well after the uh, the enjoyment of flying the VC-10 the 707 was a, a different kettle of fish we used to call it uh, a very nice piece of agricultural equipment. 
He left the country to work in Kuwait, and after a while as the 707 fleet manager, he fulfilled his dream to fly one of the most wonderful airliners of his era, the Boeing 747, an aircraft that he loved. Eventually I did end up in, with Seattle, in Seattle, uh, doing the conversion onto the 747. And so I, <clears throat> I therefore felt that my career was uh, just about complete by flying the, one of the smallest to the biggest available at, at that time. But it was a beautiful aeroplane, there's no doubt about it. And of course, as far as Kuwait was concerned, uh, with so much money available, they had everything on the aeroplane that Boeing could possibly think of. So it made it, from our point of view, a really deluxe aircraft to fly. Fuel in Kuwait was so cheap. I mean, you could fill your tank, and they all had big, big American motor cars. You could fill your tank for $4 American. Uh, you can imagine how cheap it was to put fuel into an aeroplane, so we used to... We used to um, tanker fuel around, <laughs> and we always, particularly out of Kuwait, we always had uh, full tanks. Arriving over London one early morning, uh, the, air, the airfield was, uh, was fog-bound, and there were aircraft in holding patterns. So London obviously wanted to... Um, get people in the stack in the right position as far as the amount of fuel they had. They called up each aircraft in turn and asked them what their endurance was. And when it came to my turn, I couldn't resist saying, uh, this is Kuwaiti uh, 543, our endurance is most of the day. <laughs> A training captain for many years, he would occasionally pass on a little snippet of advice. He once asked me what the first action should be following the warning of an engine fire. I came back with a list of possible actions like pull the throttle back, pull the fire handle, etc. No, he laughed, you sit back and light a cigarette. It was his way of telling me that following that rush of adrenaline you should slow things down a little so as not to make a fatal mistake. I remember asking him if losing an engine on the VC-10 was a problem. Or oh, if you wished, you could just push the other three up. <laughs> now, that, that, that's quite an aeroplane when you can do that with them. In retirement, he moved back to Australia to settle in Perth but at 60 he still felt like a young man. With Carol, his wife, they both wondered what they could still achieve with their life. So they turned their jet-setting lifestyle into something practical. Carol had trained as a cordon bleu chef in Paris, and they met when they were both flying for the same airline. They had visited some of the world's most wonderful restaurants together and accrued a lot of knowledge about fine dining, so when a historic restaurant in an up-and-coming wine-growing area came onto the market, they sold everything they owned to scrape together the asking price. It was a big gamble, 
They were in the countryside of Australia, something of a backwater, surrounded by forests and farms, but they wanted to bring the delights of modern French cookery, nouvelle cuisine, and fine wines to Australians who were more used to big slabs of steak and a beer. They struggled, from a restaurant that used to sell $10 meals to the local Rotary Club, they had to alter the expectations of their clientele. Hell, they needed an entirely new clientele. Slowly they modernised the kitchens and altered the wonderful old building. The big house had been the home of an enormously wealthy timber baron who harvested the beautiful curry wood of the area and shipped it around the empire to become the sleepers of the new Indian railways and would even pave the streets of London. The house was exquisitely redecorated with antique French furniture and the restaurant became a showplace for the wonderful New World wines being grown in the vineyards that were fast appearing all around. Six days a week, eleven months a year, they worked, until he passed his two score years and ten and on. By then they had been recognised as somewhere special and fashionable to go, despite the four-hour drive from Perth. They won accolades and awards, but finally it was time to sell and move on, this time to an avocado farm. After building their own house, a wonderful creation on a ridge overlooking a valley which led to the ocean, they began to relax. By now I was the captain of my own airliner, and my proudest moment was to fly this wonderful couple from Hong Kong to London. A man who had let me grow up on the jump seat of his aircraft, I was now able to return the favour. They finally retired and settled into a leafy suburb of Perth near the river, where Carol was able to return to her education at the University of Western Australia, gaining her degree, master's and a doctorate, and finally teaching there. He found the Dalkeith and Nedlands Bowling Club more to his liking, and it was in those quiet years that he found a new challenge, and until the day of his passing he fought first throat cancer and then skin cancer probably from the damage done in his young days as a lifesaver. He attributed his continued good looks to the many melanomas he had removed, which, he said, was like having an annual facelift. This wonderful man was honoured by being awarded a fellowship of the Royal Aeronautical Society in recognition of a lifetime of aviation achievement and the presentation of the Légion d'honneur with the grateful thanks of the French nation. When the world remembered the anniversary of the Battle of Atlantic, he came to Britain to represent those of the Royal Australian Air Force who did so much to finally banish the U-boats from the Atlantic Ocean. In the few days it's taken me to create this tale, it's turned from a homage to an obituary, as this man has finally left me. He was 97 years old, but I remember him as a tall, a very tall, slim man in his prime. His thinning hair did nothing to disguise his good looks, and he always had that strong swimmer's build that he formed as a young man. Calm and even-handed, well-spoken and erudite, he has been a guiding light in my life, a beacon 
that led me into the world of aviation and steered me unerringly through my flying life more accurately than any gauge or needle on the instrument panel. I can no longer laugh again at his oft-repeated jokes, sit by his side to watch an old black-and-white movie, or reminisce over a beer. How I wish I could have that time again, for that man was my father. <laughs>